It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. Alright. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. For the latter period of the Brexit crisis, John Burko became one of the most visible and powerful politicians in the UK, which is highly unusual for someone inhabiting the position of the Speaker of the House of Commons, and definitely for someone, or at least a Member of Parliament, who has as many detractors as they have friends. We'll leave it there for now, and I hope there are no further points more. There's an Arsenal match on television very soon. Today I speak to Sebastian Whale, who has written an autobiography about the man who showed the real power that the Speaker wields in Parliament, and who rallied the opposition to Brexit, and showed the power of Parliament in the face of the executive. Hello Sebastian, how are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? Uh, not too bad. Uh, we did just say we're both uh, good sons and that in this apocalyptic time we've decided to uh, come to the aid of our parents. So um, who's the better son? It's pro- probably me because I'll come further than, than you. You're in, you're in Leamington Spa, aren't you? I mean, I, I got on a train about, you know, an hour's journey. You, you came from San Francisco, so I think you win on this this game of top trumps. <laughs> I should do a radio link here now, shouldn't I, and say... John Burko was the son of a taxi driver um, mm. of Jewish parentage. What's the most remarkable thing about John Burko? Is it the fact that potentially he has strengthened and shaped the position of the Speaker of the House of Commons? Or is it his political journey from uh, right wing fringes to um, soft, cuddly, centrist liberal? Well, I think it's all part of the same one. I think the overarching thing is the journey because it did lead to him end up you know, being the bastion of the Commons and... Uh, its defender in, in many ways. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, lots of people go on political journeys, but they tend to be from the left to the right. That's, to, that's the more cliche, stereotypical mm-hmm. journey that people go on. But John Burko did the opposite of that. And I would say he had the most fascinating journey of anyone in contemporary modern politics, and certainly in the UK. And studying it and looking into why that was the case was, was one of the most fascinating things I've, I've ever done in my life, to be honest with you. It sounds like a very obvious question, but why did you decide that you need to write a book about him? And why now? The idea came from my editor. Uh, I work for the House Magazine as political editor. Um, House Magazine is the UK's weekly 
publication. Um, so it gets distributed mm-hmm. to every MP here. And it was his idea. He, he was researching it for, for reasons known only to himself. He was uh, researching him on the weekend. And then he texted me at about nine o'clock on a Saturday night and said, um, you should write a book on John Burko. And in my day job, I write profiles of MPs and interview them. And I've always been fascinated by John Burko. And he's always been the key figure ever since I've been sort of politically conscious, which was mm-hmm. about when I went to university. So I went in 2009 and he became a speaker then. So he's been an omnipresent figure in my sort of political journey of my own, to be honest with you. And he's just such a fascinating guy. You know, I didn't necessarily have that many preconceptions about him as a person or about his character. I had, you know, perceptions. I thought, you know, he could show some signs of bias. I thought he uh, could be prone to anger. But equally, I thought he was absolutely box office and one of the most entertaining figures in, in, in British politics and indeed in public life. Naturally, he was just a fascinating person to to study. And then when you look mm. into him and you learn about his early life, some of his challenges there, he was quite badly bullied, difficult, complicated upbringing with his parents and from fairly humble beginnings as well, through to his, his days on the student right of um, conservative politics, you know, uh, more Thatcherite than Thatcher, through to the kind of torch-bearing liberal that we know today. So as I looked into that, saw some of the contradictions things that didn't ostensibly make sense at first before you got to know him. And mm-hmm. I just thought I have to do this book because it's just um, such an incredibly interesting journey and such a fascinating story. So you worked for Politics Home, you now work for the House. So you are, you, you kind of know politicians, don't you? you? You know Parliament, you know how it works, you know the personalities um, around that kind of famed institution. Why is it that Burko, much beloved by, let's say, people outside of the House of Commons. Why did he have so many detractors within? That's an excellent question. I think a lot of it can come down to perception, because I think there is a perception of John Burko in the public, and there's a perception of John Burko from those who know him personally, and often those can differ, because I spoke to a few um, journalists from Italy, Portugal, the United States, and their perception of John Burko is as this eccentric a slightly verbose but very entertaining character who defended you know, the, the commons against the bully boys in government. And, and that's, that mm-hmm. is one perception of John Burke. There's another perception where he doesn't have fantastic interpersonal skills. You know, he's, he's wonderfully articulate and entertaining in the House of Commons chamber. But behind the scenes, he's, he can be quite abrupt. He can be, as I say, prone to anger. So there's a different perceptions between the, you know, perhaps what the perceived reality is and the reality. That's not to say that he's not, you know, he has plenty of friends and people who would say, you know, good things about him. Equally, as we know, with some of the bullying allegations against him, there is also another side to John Burko, which those who have worked alongside him for many years have, have experienced. And that's why I think there's a slight disconnect between the public perception, which, you know, is often favourable, particularly in the last couple of years on, on Brexit depending on what side of the ledger you find yourself, if you're a Remain or a Lever. He, he hasn't necessarily accumulated that many friends. And I think part of that is just the nature of being a successful politician, is that often mm-hmm. you will have upset a few people along the way. That That is just the way that these things go. And part of that is because he has a personality that is uh, divisive. And he, he says that, you know, he says, I know I can be somewhat divisive as, as a character in, in how I handle myself. But he is incredibly honest, and uh, and yeah, and I think that's why there's a slight disconnect between those two uh, perceptions. Mm. All right, so let's wind all the way back to um, the teenage John Burko. Um, mm. He's pretty smart. 
um, he doesn't go to um, a grammar school or anything like that, but he ends up being part of the kind of right wing group who are, are kind of aligned to, but at the fringes of, of the Tory party. Tell us all about that and let's start his political journey. The, the key character in terms of his political journey is his dad. He was a mm-hmm. big fan of, among other people, Enoch Powell. Now, obviously, Enoch Powell, we now know and think of uh, famously for his Rivers of Blood speech in 1968 and some of his highly divisive, well, frankly, racist um, proclamations in that regard. In 15 or 20 years' time, the black man will have the whip hand over the white man. Well, I can already hear the chorus of execration. How dare I say such a horrible thing? How dare I stir up trouble and inflame feelings by repeating such a conversation? My answer is that I do not have the right not to do so. At the time, obviously, that, that Rivers of Blood Street was, was, was very controversial, but he was ultimately a mainstream politician and he was popular amongst a certain cohort of, of people, one of whom was John Burko's dad. Now, he passed on that passion for Enoch Powell's politics because Enoch Powell was an incredible orator, so, you know, notwithstanding mm. everything in between. Um, he was you know, a very powerful politician, one who could deliver great speeches, great affectations, all this kind of thing. And I think he was quite an alluring figure. And, and so, so Burko was inspired towards the, the right um, but largely due to sort of his father. And he would, um, you know, he was a very uh, precocious book. He used to read the, not, the Times newspaper at the age of about 10 and discuss the politics of the day with his, his the, the parents of his friends and things like that. So he was, he was well ahead of the curve, as you can probably imagine. Um, so he, yeah, as a teenager, he was, he was, he was pretty right wing. And then he grew up, you know, his formative years were during the uh, 1974 to 1979 parliament when you had a hung parliament and then there was all sorts of things with the winter of discontent. And basically, you know, the UK wasn't in a great position at that point in time. And that was formative because he thought, well, this doesn't look right to me. So when mm-hmm. Margaret Thatcher came along, he was like, yes, I, I, this is a bit of me, this, you know, that kind of more <laughs> almost libertarian outlook in terms of personal responsibility backing business, low taxation, that kind of thing. He was fully signed up to that, you know, from 16, 17, 18. Mm-hmm. Naturally, as someone who admired Enoch Powell, he also was quite authoritarian when it came to immigration. So after he left school, he joined a group called the Monday Club, which is affiliated to the Conservative Party. Now, at the time, thought of as a pretty right-wing organisation, particularly in this, this era, and mm-hmm. they believed in the repatriation of immigrants back to their countries. They felt that the UK could not sustain the levels of immigration that it was seeing at that point in time, both from a public services standpoint and also just from a sort of social cohesion standpoint, which was Burko's main thing. So despite being the grandson of a Romanian uh, Jew, Burko was, was anti-immigration, um, which is one of those contradictions that I discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. So he found himself in the Monday Club and he was he was he was a member of it for three years, active eighteen months, and he was he was even he was a secretary on the immigration and repatriation committee. So he was fully signed up to these these views. And then he he says that he he sort of left 
figuratively in eight, after 18 months when he realised that he was actually surrounded by some relatively unpleasant people with some, with some unpleasant views. And it's one of those things that has very much not haunted him, but you can tell in his, in his personal discussions about his early political beliefs that he is somewhat, as he said he's, himself, he's ashamed. It's his words, not mine. Mm-hmm. He's ashamed of those days. And I think you need to consider his liberal shift with that in mind. I think his liberal shift is sincere, don't get me wrong. And I think it's um, well evidenced across two decades, at least. I think part of it is motivated by an awakening to just how wrong he perceived his previous views to have been. And so he's in some way not compensating, but almost trying to make up for those early beliefs. And and, and that's to be probably, you know, applauded, if anything, because if you start on the wrong side of the argument, you end up on the right one. And that's that's the journey is is a good one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but it's just a very interesting thing to consider. Um, mm. It's definitely a formative part of, of, of John Burko's journey that those early days in the Monday Club is something that, that really stand out as mm. important to what happened subsequently as well. Only hope is to be able to get away from Southall, away from it all. Like everybody else, all our friends have gone. There's nothing left for English people in this town anymore. I would like to say this. My wife and I used to like to go out weekends to, down to the local, have a couple of drinks, meet friends in there. We can't go into with the locals anymore. They're full up with noisy foreigners, and we don't like it. We don't we like it. We haven't got a place left where we, the English people, can go and enjoy ourselves in this town. After going through two world wars, we should at least have the dignity of being allowed to live with our own kind. I think i ask a really naive question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. His grandfather was a Romanian Jew. When he emigrated to Britain, he changes the family surname from Berkowitz to Burkow, so it sounds anglicised. So his father was a practising Jew. His mother converted Judaism. Did he just forget he was Jewish? Did he forget that actually he was from immigrant struck? Was it, or was this a case of, well, we are white. Immigrants back then were seen as non-whites. We're not talking about early 21st century waves of Eastern European immigration into the UK. How could he square that as soon as he walked into that organisation? That's an excellent question. That's not a naive question at all. Um, I think uh, there's, there's various complications within that. You, you are right that um, his uh, mother converted uh, to mm-hmm. Judaism when she married Charles Burke. And um, there are some schools of thought where because Jewishness is passed on matrilineally through through the mother, mm. um, that to some quote-unquote authentic Jews, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, I just mean to some people who believe in that kind of, that lineage has to be there. John mm. Burko wasn't quite Jewish. And to others, to non-Jews, he was Jewish. And so he found himself in this kind of halfway house where um, a sense, you know, in terms of belonging to a community or a group, that that... That was he was sort of denied that in a way. Mm. Uh, in terms of why he, he went for this anti-immigration approach, I think an interesting aspect of that could be that as a descendant of a, of a Romanian immigrant, perhaps he felt, admittedly second generation, um, he, if he could, you know, he could have espoused on the rights of other people to belong in Britain, 
he felt more British himself, if that makes sense. Mm. He felt that he'd earned the right to kind of talk about who else could belong. And it gave him a sense of belonging in, in, in surrounding himself with these people. Um, because as I say, he, he kind of found himself slightly in limbo where he didn't necessarily fit in with certain groups. And I think he found this authoritarian um, genre of politics, particularly after being bullied and, and ostracized as a teenager, quite appealing. Um, but it's certainly, it's a very valid question though, how, how um, someone with, with his background ended up with such a hard line on immigration because it is um, ostensibly, you know, it, as you say, at that point, particularly in 1980s, you obviously had Windrush, um, the Windrush generation, you know, a decade or so earlier as well. So it would have been largely, you know, influx of, mm. of based on, on colour that you had problems yeah. with. So um, pe- pe- People like me. Indeed. And, um, yeah. you know, and the, the notion, you know, us talking about this, you know, if John Burko was, say, a third window in this conversation, he'd be mortified. Mm. You know, he'd, he would be mortified that we were talking about this in these terms. And I think that is absolutely sincere. I just think a, a series of events in his life of, of not really belonging anywhere or not fitting in led him to a group that very much are only certain people can sit with us kind of thing. I think that kind mm. of appealed to it. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a fascinating aspect of his character. So in the early 80s, he, he, he sees the light and realises that there are a whole bunch of uh, unpleasant racists. Um he goes to university. Um, let, let's try and fill in uh, the time between the early 80s and him becoming a councillor and then uh, an MP. Give, give us the, the lay of the land, um, because surely politically, in terms of understanding how politics really works, as opposed to the theory of politics, um, mm. these must have been formative years for him. So let's go through that period before he becomes an MP. Dress for that favourite media catchphrase, the U-turn. I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies, not for turning. Be pleased to inform Her Majesty that the white ensign flies alongside the Union Jack in South Georgia. God save the Queen. What happens next? What is the not? Thank you very much. What's your reaction? Rejoice at that news and congratulate our forces and the Marines. We- President of the Commission, Mr. Delors, said at press conference the other day that he wanted the European Parliament to be the democratic body of the community. He wanted the Commission to be the executive and he wanted the Council of Ministers to be the Senate. No, no, no. Levels of income are better off than they were in 1979. But what the honourable member is saying is that he would rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That way you will never create the wealth for better social services as we have. And what a policy! Yes, he would rather have the poor poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That is a liberal policy. And we're very happy that we leave the United Kingdom in a very, very much better state than when we came here 11 and a half years ago. So university was uh, probably the happiest time of, of John Burko's early years. He, he, he talks um, effusively about his experience. So he went to Essex University and he, he studied government. Um, 
And mm -hmm. there he very much got involved with conservative student politics, as you can imagine. Um, but Essex at the time was, was a hotbed of, of sort of left-wing activism. Um, they uh, they had some, there was a miners strike nearby and they had some of the miners come and, you know, some, some of them put uh, miners in their dormitories and things like that. So Burke was very much on the... Um, in the minority in that sense. Um, but that didn't stop him. You know, he was fantastically brave, frankly. He used to give um, sort of these conservative sermons in, in the square in the university um, where he would just be baited by people on the left. He once had a pipe poured over him by a left-wing activist who didn't like what he was saying. But he was, mm -hmm. uh, he, you know, he didn't, uh, I think he was, you know, he's brave. It was obviously he took some some balls, frankly, to to take on what was a, a quite a hostile um, environment for conservatives like him. So that was very formative. But at the same time, he was involved with a group called the Federation of Conservative Students. Now, the Federation of Conservative Students was, again, affiliated with the Conservative Party. Um, they were given a grant by the party every year. And it was a big 14,000 or so strong um, group of student activists. Now, obviously, at this point, this is so Burko was 1982 to 1985, where his student is. At this point as well, you have militant and the rise of the the left um, at the same time. So you had quite a brash, forthright form of, of politics going on on the left. And the Federation of Conservative Students very much matched them for that. They would uh, picket various events. They would, like, for example, Burko went down to a Labour Party conference to sort of hackle people from outside of the secure zone and things like that. So he sort of learned that confrontational approach to politics and also how to take on the left and try and um, counter their 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 narratives. Um, so this was, again, very formative. And, and Burko went on to chair this body, the Federation of Conservative Students. Now, in what I find fascinating is in this group, the Federation of Conservative Students, there were also people such as Robbie Gibb, who went on to um, serve as Theresa May's head of communications, you have people mm -hmm. such as Douglas Smith, who's now in Boris Johnson's number 10 unit. Um, and in the rival group, the Young Conservatives, you had Nick Robinson, who is the former political editor of the BBC and presenter on the Today programme. So you had these, all these figures who, um, there are plenty more as well, including a number of MPs who were involved in this student group, who got to know each other at this point. Um, some of them, you know, weren't big fans of Burka, others were... And it was formative because, it, first of all, it gave him a big platform. So when he chaired this group, um, he was known to senior figures in the Conservative Party, including Norman Tebbit, who was the chair of um, chairman of the Conservative Party at the time. And, you know, Burko would have regular conversations with these people. So it gave him a platform and notoriety within the Conservative Party. And that was where he really started to, to cut through as a figure and someone who became known as a future MP and a future star, basically. Mm -hmm. He also um, he would also do speeches at um, the annual uh, Conservative Party conferences that would always take place. Um, and he used to get rousing receptions for... He, he used to give these speeches where he would say, isn't low tax great and isn't Margaret Thatcher brilliant? Where, you know, he'd say the easy things and get huge standing ovations, which his friends used to take the mickey out of him for. But... Um, Certainly, you're right, you know, pre-becoming a counsellor in 1986, 
that five-year period of, of student politics um, and being a part of this big federation, which eventually closed, which uh, I go into quite a lot of detail about in the book, um, uh, was very formative because it, it gave him, as I say, notoriety within the Conservative Party. Um, it built up a number of contacts um, with future MPs and leading journalists. Um, and um, also, I think, it's where he gained confidence. I think it's where, after a, a difficult um, school life, he grew into himself as a campaigner and as a political force mm. and solidified his view that he wanted to become an MP. We, we we kind of transition from the Thatcher years and the John Major years, and then he becomes a, a councillor in Lambeth. Mm. Just for our American listeners, give us a, a sense of uh, the political time that he becomes a councillor, but then also kind of more importantly than that, uh, or at least as important as that, um, describe Lambeth and, and Streatham for us. Um, because Lambeth fundamentally is a, a bit of a, a Labour stronghold politically, isn't it? So give us an idea of what Lambeth was, uh, Streatham, etc. And also what a councillor actually even does, because I said there's going to be a lot of people listening to this uh, that won't exactly know, um, you know, what exactly a councillor does um, in, in the UK kind of political sense. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I mentioned earlier with, with, with Militant, on, on the left of politics, so this, it's a bit like today, and American listeners will be able to understand this, is that politics mm-hmm. was very much split between Margaret Thatcher on the right and a bit like Ronald Reagan at the time, and then the, the left and the Labour Party. You had you know, the Michael Foote years and some left-wing leaders, and then you had Neil Kinnock came in who tried to um, push the party towards the centre, but there was this big cohort of... Um, activists who were very you know anti-nuclear weapons um pro-state intervention very much anti-thatcher and lambeth was this is the is a borough in london in south london um which at the time was emblematic of this national divide so lambeth was run by a leader who actually died two days ago, um, I think it was two days ago, uh, called Ted Knight. He was called Red Ted Knight because of his um, political beliefs. And he uh, opposed the Thatcher government staunchly and he had an army of sort of left-wing activists, which the right used to call um, loons, um, you know, in a not particularly um, flattering light. And, um, and he uh, refused the budget cuts that the Thatcher government had decided to impose on local councils. And as a result found that the, he was fined and then banned from running for public office for five years, along with a number of other Labour um, politicians at the time. In terms of what a councillor is, a councillor is basically, you know, Lambeth is a is a area of local government in South London. And a councillor is partly responsible for um, helping to run that local area it's just a subset of of a wider political view so the reason lambeth was such a draw to john burko is because it was full of these so-called uh, you know lefty loons um and him as a quite a confrontational right-wing politician at that time really wanted to take on and infiltrate this council because as i say it was led by originally red ted knight and then it was taken over by linda bellos who was a quite a radical herself and a, a quite a well 
quite a well-known feminist. Um, really, she's good fun to talk to. Actually, she, I spoke to her for the book. Really enjoyed it. And um, and so a group of conservative um, politicians who were called the Young Turks at the time, who came out of sort of student politics, wanted to go onto these councils where there were loads of left wingers and just basically bait them and wind them up. And Lambeth was the perfect example for that. And um, and it was a role that Burko took on with a plum and. Um, on that council was also a future MP called John Mann, who was a Labour MP. Um, he's now a peer, a member of the House of Lords. And he's, he described Burke as an extremist in those days. Extremist in terms of he was just just very right wing and very, mm. you know, espousing all the things that you, you associate with, with right wingness, you know, tough on immigration, lower tax, all that kind of thing. And, uh, and yeah, so Lambeth was, was where he really sort of um, cut his... Uh, political cloth on a, on a more kind of public and high profile scale than he had done in student politics. But in doing so, he also, you know, Lambeth at that time was, as you say, it was, it was fairly left wing and, and in aspects of it were, um, I think you know, it was quite a hostile place, obviously for a Tory to be. Hmm. And I know that him and him and some of his colleagues did suffer some, you know, they've received lots of death threats. They were of that ilk where they just confrontation was just, how their modus operandi that was how they got things done yeah i just say there's a chapter in the book where you know we look at it and um there there are some really good stories about what was going on behind the scenes and and some of the hostility that they faced and and also an interesting thing for me is that somebody with such stringent right-wing views you know that even though he's rolled them back somewhat from the case of maybe repatriating all the immigrants, you know, Lambeth was a very racially diverse borough then, much more then than now. You know, it had a, a very significant black population um, further north of the borough from Streatham, where he was, in, in Brixton. So, you know, he would have absolutely been going up to fight not only what he would have perceived as the loony left, but also... Um, multicultural Britain and been railing against it. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. Um, and you're right. I mean, the Monday Club days where he was a member of the immigration, uh, the repatriation committee. Um, you know, they weren't that long behind him. And mm. um, I think he he would say that he he dropped those views at that time. But certainly, you know, he was he was going into an environment where what he was saying was was deeply deeply unwelcome. Um, which makes it all the more remarkable, really, that he decided to do it. I don't think he ever took an easy route, but I think it was it was just a place for um, a young, up and coming, ambitious conservative to sort of um, make a name for themselves and also take one for the team in a way. Mm. To um, you know, because some of the more senior conservative politicians probably looked at Lambeth and thought, "No, thank you. I want a you know a bit of a quieter life, and I'll go I'll go where I'm wanted as opposed to where I'm not." And um, but he did get elected there, so you know there were still elements of of um, conservative voters uh, within Lambeth, but mm. there weren't. They were certainly not in the majority. What was his day job back then? And, and as soon as he left uh, Essex, did he basically say, I want to be a politician? I want to be a member of parliament? I, to be honest with you, he probably thought that from the age of about eight, nine. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So after he left Essex, he did a year sabbatical where he was chair of the Federation of Conservative Students. Mm-hmm. Um, his first job, which he was only in for, for about a, a year, 
was at a bank and he was um that was through various contacts in the conservative party but even though the banking industry was obviously thriving in the 1980s it was not one that suited john burko so what he ended up working in was for a company called roland uh, salenbury casey which is a lobbying firm and he worked there for about five years um he first started working there in 88 and he left in 93 i believe um and he yeah so he was political lobbying so because of his connections with the conservative party he was quite a useful lobbyist so they had various clients and they would lobby on various things be it defense or what have you um cultural you know um aspects he would then lobby um mps and, and and other people to take on board their views and he was quite effective because as i say he had, he was he was very well connected at these days and um yeah but it was all you know it was all leading one way um his his overall aim was always to become a member of parliament so he first stood in 1987 in motherwell south so this is when he was still a lambeth councillor um mm-hmm. now motherwell south um to explain to the audience was is particularly in those days you know margaret thatcher was not particularly popular in scotland uh, where Motherwell South is. So it was again, it was one of those seats that he was never going to win. But by taking one for the team, he was ingratiating himself to senior figures in the party that one day they might give him, you know, a decent seat where he, he could get elected. Mm-hmm. So he lost he lost there. And then in 1992, at the general election, he stood in Bristol South. Now, he was more hopeful of, at this point of um, winning a majority because the incumbent who's called Dawn Primarolo, who would actually go on to be a, a deputy speaker under Burko um, down the line, she'd, she'd had a fairly small majority and looked vulnerable. As it turned out, she won with an increased majority and uh, Burko um, roundly lost. So he tried and failed twice to get elected. Um, and then he started working for a man called Jonathan Aitken, who was defence minister at the time, and he worked for him as a special advisor. Now, special advisor is is basically in those days it was more of a sort of a bag carrier, someone who obviously would uh, provide advice on speeches and media engagements and such like. Um, and Jonathan Aiken um, ended up perjuring himself over it was a, quite a long winded story, and he ended up in in jail some years later. Um, but John stayed loyal to him, which was admirable because um, others, you know, because he was quite politically toxic. Obviously, a minister who ends mm-hmm. up in jail is is is, uh, is somewhat toxic. But he stayed loyal to him as a, as, as a friend, and um, all the while he was still applying for seats, and he came close a couple of times and and fell short until he ran for Buckingham in 1997. Now, the, the quite a famous story of John Burkos was that he was also um, in the running for a seat in Surrey Heath. So two mm-hmm. very safe Conservative seats. Basically, if he got selected for either of these, he was going to end up in Parliament. Job mm-hmm. done. There's no way. Even though at the subsequent election, Tony Blair romped to victory, that was always going to be a safe Tory seat. But the problem was that the... Um, final sort of uh, hearings for each candidate were scheduled on the same night in each constituency. So one in Surrey and one in Buckingham. And his friend, Julian Lewis, who is also a Conservative MP, um, came up with the idea of using a helicopter. So John did his speech in Surrey Heath, 
He then jumped into a car. It'd been snowing that day, but regardless, the helicopter flew. So he then flew in a helicopter all the way to Buckingham, which is about, what, an hour away, I'd say? Maybe an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, landed, got into a car, raced there, got there just in time, delivered a speech, wowed the audience, and he got selected. And that was that. That was his ticket to, to Parliament, and he never looked back. When Tony Blair emerged from his North London home into the morning sunshine to head for the palace, he was almost swamped by well-wishers. In a break with tradition signalling a determination to do things differently, the Blairs walked into Downing Street to be cheered by hundreds of party workers. So it's uh, 1997 and the British political firmament is extremely different from the early 1980s. We have Tony Blair's new Labour thing. It's a case of getting rid of, what, literally 20 years of, of Tory rule. Is that where we start to substantively see the change in, in John Burko? Yeah, absolutely. So um, he started off as he as he meant to go on. Really, he was still mm-hmm. as combative as he was in Lambeth or as a student. He was uh, pretty right wing in those days. People used to tell me that he used to, you know, quote, "You're not pal still." So he was he was still the same John Burko. Um, he was also part of this uh, coterie of Tory MPs who would stay in uh, the Commons late because at, at that point there was no timetabling. So now there's a start and an end point to when mm-hmm. a parliamentary day. In those days, there was a start point, but there wasn't necessarily an end point. So what they would do, these Tory MPs, would be to give long-winded speeches, which were tangential to the debate or discussion or bill or whatever it was at hand, and keep their Labour, the Labour minister and their Labour opposite numbers up until the early hours just to wind them up. Just to, you know, they mm. would say they were holding them to account, but the truth is they were, they were, you know, doing what was perfectly within the rules, but they were just uh, filibustering, basically. Yeah. And Burko, being the committed and dedicated parliamentarian, was was one of this this group, um, and it did eventually lead to what we now know as the timetabling of Parliament. So there are ten pm finish points and all this kind of thing, and that was all partly due to John Burke. Because I must just direct one further gentle salvo at the Honourable Gentleman, the member for Cunning North, Scottish Education Minister. I understand the Honourable Gentleman's predicament. It must be a source of quite the most stupefying embarrassment for him to have to come before the House today after the cat-handed, incompetent handling of the situation in Scotland. It is testimony, we presume, to their disbelief in equal treatment of every resident of the United Kingdom. And it is shameful. St Andrews, Dundee, Edinburgh, the other Scottish universities will demonstrate beyond her adventure the damage that the Honourable Gentleman's misjudgment has caused. The reality, Mr Deputy Speaker, in conclusion, is that the government's approach has been characterised by deception, 
by iniquity and by incompetence. The losers are the students and the higher education system of this country. And for that, I hope that I doubt the Honourable Gentleman will have the good grace and courtesy today to apologise to this House. In his early days, he was... Um... He was very much a man of the House of Commons. He was rarely seen outside of it, to such an extent that mm -hmm. some people were sort of wondering about whether this guy had any life at all. Um, but he just, you know, it was, what, it was his dream to get there. So for him, um, you know, why waste it, I guess? But there's some really important moments in that first parliament. So the first parliament was 97 to 2001. Mm -hmm. The most significant of which was a vote on the equalising the age of consent for... Um, homosexuals now burke had voted against this three times um the the blair government wanted to reduce because obviously it's 16 age consent for heterosexuals and at the time it was 18 um, for homosexuals so they wanted to equalize that now the conservative party at the time was you know you might we might well think of them now as being lowercase c conservative and um traditional um mm -hmm. cautious whatever you want to call it but obviously 20 years ago, even more so. Um, and in February 2000, I think it was the fourth time of asking, Burko changed his mind. And he was going to vote in favour. And he gave this big speech where he explained why. And he set out his arguments for it about what, you know why he'd changed his mind. And he won plaudits from people he'd never won plaudits before. And I think it's a really important date in his political life, because from that moment forward, he really carried the torch for these kind of equality issues. Mm -hmm. He did it, he did it, you know, and, and he'd always been, to be fair, from that, you know, at that stage, he was, in terms of race, his, his, his comments on race and equality in that respect, he'd certainly moved a long way from where he was 15 years earlier. But the plaudits that he won for this speech, which was an excellent speech, um, endeared into a crowd who had previously not been big fans at all. And I think he realised that um, it was a big Damascene conversion for him. And one thing about John Burke is when he believes in the political cause, he throws himself wholeheartedly into it. He doesn't do anything, you know, half-heartedly. Mm. He just fully commits. And from that point forward, 20 years ago, he's been true to his word on that. So that was incredibly important. And also at the same time, he got his first front bench role. So he was in the shadow education team for the Conservatives. He then went to the shadow home team. But he quickly realised that keeping to the party line was never his strong suit. And that is important for Burko because his potential was huge as a massively gifted speaker, as a someone who was well-versed in parliamentary procedure and how it operates and how politics operates. The, the good bits of it, the bad bits of it, he knew, mm. he used to say it was like meat and drink to him. However, life on the front bench um, in government, and it's not, not in government, in the, in the leadership team, did not suit him because you have to abide by the party line. You have to, uh, you can't, you know, publicly criticise your leader or, you know, members of that team. And um, he did do that because he is a very honest guy. He's very upfront and he can't keep his views to himself. Mm -hmm. As a result of that, the only real path that opened up to him 
um, to achieve the kind of influence that someone of his talents and ambition could achieve would be through the speakership. And that was a realisation that was put to him by Jonathan Aiken, the person who he used to work for, the minister who went to jail in, the, I think it was about the year 2003. And from that moment on, when, when John realised that he wasn't going to be able to uh, bring to bear his talents in the Conservative Party, that's when he really wholeheartedly went on that journey towards getting the speakership. Just before we go on to the speakership, he got married in 2003 and his wife, had similarly gone on a political journey as well, hadn't she? She starts off a, a conservative, but I think by then she had become a member of, of the Labour Party, or at least she was espousing Labour Party positions. Is it fair to say that maybe she led him um, on the kind of political conversion as well? This is one of the existential questions about John Blocher that people uh, talk about. Um, you're mm-hmm. right, Sally was a... They met at a Conservative Student Conference in 1989. Uh, they dated on and off for the next sort of... 10, 15 years, only really getting back together in 2001. Um, and they married in, in late 2002, it was December 2002. Um, Sally would have died in, died in the wall Blairite by 1997. She fully renounced her conservative ways and came out as, as, as very much a left winger. What I would say is that, you know, the speech in February 2000 was before they got back together. So I think his beliefs in equality issues and, and issues on race predate them getting back together. However, I would say that Sally ignited within Burko that social liberalness mm. and motivated him to kick it up a gear and to not um, release the pressure because Burko was continually trying to change his party's um, stance on on gay rights and, and um, uh, you know issues around equality. And I think she was very much a driving force in that. You know, Burko Burko often pushes back against the idea that, that Sally was um, somehow pulling the strings. And I, th- I understand that, but I think it's not actually insulting to suggest that someone you love and care about actually um, mm. you know, influenced you. That's just, that's natural, right? That's where we all have that experience and it's a good thing. Yeah. So I think certainly she's, she's, a, key, she's a key figure, um, controversial as well. Um, very interesting um, background. They both lost their fathers young which was an you know, interesting formative experience that they both shared. Um, and uh, her coming on the scene definitely seemed to kick him um, into gear in terms of really pushing this agenda that we now associate with him. So if we think back to the Tory party of that time, we have a whole series of leaders who are somewhat in the wake of Tony Blair. Tony Blair is this new political phenomenon who has come and radically reshaped British politics and the Tory party is kind of floundering. We we have a whole series of uh, Tory leaders, people like Ian Duncan Smith, for, for example, and we end up with David Cameron. And what it seems to me that the Tory party was doing was kind of realigning itself as economically conservative. So there are the heirs of Thatcher, but becoming socially liberal because we have David Cameron, who then, when he becomes prime minister, you know, he does, uh, in effect, sign off on, on gay marriage. So viewed that way, John Burko's social liberalism seems very much in lockstep with the Tory party. So what I'm still at, at a loss for, because I'm, I'm putting the cart before the horse, Tories, Conservatives now don't like him. But actually, ideologically, he was very much in lockstep with the party's drift and change in the early 2000s, wasn't he? 
uh, I would say that he was he was uh, ahead of them. He was ahead of the curve. So mm-hmm. um, yes, you're right. He 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 was where they ended up. Um, he, he famously says that he was more more pro the modernization agenda than Cameron. He was he was there, he was, he got there before Cameron did. But you're right with what Cameron was saying. The great irony, Burko, is that that should have been everything that he wanted and more because they were ideologically aligned. You know, Merkel is still a conservative. He still believes in low taxation and in backing business and mm. things like that. But he's, he's, he became socially liberal. So the Cameron modernizing agenda should have been perfect. The problem was the personalities. They hated each other. Um, so I document throughout the book the various times that they came across each other. And they all seemed to sort of hinge on... Um, uh, the 2005 leadership contest. So Michael Howard has stepped down. David Cameron was running, and John Burko gave this interview where he um, said, "We don't need another old Etonian," and he made a few personal remarks about sort of Cameron's background. Now, um, there might be, you know, there might be a fair critique of Cameron, and there's something that did plague him. His leadership is the fact that he was mm. too posh. You know, that was something that always was always. The problem was the personal nature of it. Meant that John Burko was never going to have a role in Cameron's team because that that was that you know it was it was um the personality clashes were too big so despite having almost completely aligned views and perception of perceptions about where the conservative party needed to be which were both based on looking at how new labor had done so well tony blair's Mm. straddling of the center ground and thinking that's where we need to be both both men are smart and both men had realized that but they couldn't stand each other, so um, so that's 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 part of the reason. So so Burke was you know Burke was ahead of the Conservative Party on many of these issues. That's that is for sure. Um, um, but you know it, it should have been a very fruitful relationship with Cameron, but because of personalities, um, it wasn't. It's the late noughts, and the the position of Speaker is available. Remind us. How was the position of Speaker perceived at the time? Why did he run? Who were his proponents? And where did he get his support from in Parliament? Sure. So um, the Speaker's role has always been to be seen but not heard, to be impartial, to oversee the debates in the chamber and facilitate them to make sure they can operate and run. And also to be a bastion and champion of the House of Commons as an institution, both outside and sort of within within it. So that's the role of the Speaker. Now, the incumbent was a man called Michael Martin, who uh, was formerly a Labour MP. When you're a Speaker, you renounce your political affiliation. Um, and before him, it was Betty Bufroyd, who was also a Labour politician. Now, Michael Martin was... Um, like Burko, from very humble humble beginnings, he was from Glasgow, I believe, um, um, quite a, a tough and rough uh, area of Glasgow. And um, but he was never one to uh, grapple with executive overreach or to mm-hmm. champion the House of Commons and stick up for backbenchers. He was he's a lovely man, and he, he passed away a couple of years ago. But he, he was not a particularly good speaker of the commons. Now, Burko decided he was going to run in about 2005 when he realised that his future in the Conservative Party was done, really. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he had no... There's no ladder for him to climb. There's nothing available to him because of his relationship with David Cameron. Um, 
And he quickly realised that to win the speakership, he would need to rely on the votes of opposition parties because the Conservative Party, for various reasons, you know, not many MPs liked him at all. The reason they didn't mm. like him was because he was very, very critical of their party. Um, there were lots of rumours about him potentially, uh, potentially defecting to the Labour Party. And as I said earlier, he doesn't have the best interpersonal skills. So along the way, he had alienated a few people. So he decided to, um, understandably, because he was trying to win a campaign, to focus on Labour MPs and MPs from other parties. So he would do things like send notes to MPs after they did speeches in the Commons, praising them for yeah. their articulation and their argument and what have you. And he very much went on a uh, something of a crusade to, to win over their votes. And it was a, one of the most effective campaigns of modern times, really, in terms of British politics. And the speakership contest came about because Michael Martin resigned after the expenses scandal hit the UK Parliament. Now, the expenses scandal, for your listeners, was obviously probably the biggest story of that period of time, wasn't it? Was It was massive. And it basically showed MPs had been excessive with claiming for all sorts of different things. It was very damaging to the reputation of Parliament. And Michael Martin fell on his sword as a result. So Burko, who had spent the previous four years laying the groundwork for a speakership campaign, his campaign was then led by a Labour MP called Martin Salter. And the rules dictated you need 15, 12 to 15 nominees to stand for the speakerships. That's 12 to 15 members of parliament, uh, three of which have to be from an opposition party. Um, now, the irony for Burko was that um, that was no problem. He just needed to try and find someone on his own side to nominate him. Mm. So he only managed to get he only managed to get one person who was Charles Walker, who was a very close uh, friend of, of Burko's and confidant, a very good guy, lovely guy, well thought of politician who loves an underdog and he backed Burko. And without him, you know, he wouldn't have a nominee to get on the uh, the ballot paper. So that shows mm. where he was in this in this grand scheme of things. But he got the required nominations. It was just trying to get the Conservative side of it sorted. So by the time the speakership came around, he was the front runner because he'd run this very effective campaign. Uh, and the Labour Party, who, as I mentioned earlier, had had two Labour MPs elected Speaker, which was sort of against, it was sort of bad form that they did that because they we had had this period where they were alternating. It wasn't... Mm. Mandatory that that was the case, but to try and be fair, they were going one conservative, yeah, the convention. one Labour. Yeah, yeah. You know, some people say that they decided, well, if they want a conservative, let's give them a conservative. It wasn't really actually a Tory at all at that point. The combination of this effective campaign saw him become elected on June the twenty second, two thousand and nine. Thank you, Mr. Williams. All honourable members are, by definition, experienced campaigners. Some campaigns get off to a good start, others suffer setbacks. One of my first approaches was to a particularly distinguished colleague whom I wouldn't dream of identifying. I asked if he'd back me today. Certainly not, Burkow. You're not just too young, you're far too young. <laughs> Given that in my judgment, the speaker ought to be virtually senile. (laughs) 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Order, order. <laughs> this is the result of a third ballot. 593 ballots were cast. The number of votes cast for each candidate was as follows. John Burko, 322. Sir George Young, 271. Let's make sure we sign it off properly. Mr. John Burko has secured more than 50% of the ballots cast. The question is that Mr. John Burko take the chair of this house as Speaker. As many of you as that opinion say, aye. Aye! Of the contrary, no. I think the ayes have it. The ayes have it. Congratulations, Mr. Speaker Burko. Thank you. My first pleasant duty is warmly to thank, on behalf of us all, Alan Williams for the magnificent and good-humoured way in which he's conducted this election. It's been a very long day. And those of you expecting a customarily lengthy diatribe will be sorely disappointed. And, and there was talk before the speakership came up that he was actually was going to defect to the Labour Party, wasn't there? Yes, yeah, so it, it, was, it was actually a very close run thing. So he... Um... He was approached well, when Gordon Brown took over from Tony Blair in uh, June 2007. Um, Gordon wanted to uh, secure a few defections from the Conservative Party as a boost to his premiership, an early boost. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, through his uh, what's called a PPS, a, um, 
private parliamentary secretary who's actually an MP, basically a bad carrier, someone who is like your ears in, in the House of Commons for you, who will tell you things you need to know. Um, it was called Anne Keane, who was friends with Burko, and she approached Burko, and Ed Miliband, the future Labour leader, uh, met with Burko to try and convince him to um, defect. So it really was a very close run thing. And, and Burko said, I'm not going to defect. I'm a conservative, but thank you. Thank you, but no thank you. But it shows how far he had travelled that, you know, this former Thatcherite mm. was now being approached to join the Labour Party. So it was quite remarkable, really. What they decided to do in the end was uh, Ed Balls, who was um, the education secretary at the time, uh, a late, you know, senior Labour MP, he uh, got Burko to do a review, a government review for him on um, uh, speech therapy, basically for, for children, and access to um, to speech therapy for for children. It was a subject quite close to Burko's heart because his son has um, autism and has you know, has struggled with his speech when he was growing up. So they've got him to do this government review, um, which you know fulfilled two things one it was actually an excellent review they got them to look into an area of policy that was very important to john burke but it was also a relatively controversial and aggravating thing for the conservatives but had to have one of their own doing a review for the government the labor government so it was a clever bit of uh, politics really um but yeah so he did need to fact but uh, burke would say that he though they approached him it was never really a, a consideration that he would cross the floor of the House. Would, uh, I must just say to the House, and I'm most grateful to the Prime Minister, and before we come to points of order, that for all the turbulence and discord of today's proceedings, the little baby who has been observing them has been a model <laughs> of impeccable behaviour from start to finish. So we have uh, the coalition government in in 2010, uh, which I must admit to my eyes, uh, or just feels like a Tory government, but uh, technically it's a coalition one. Um, He wasn't he wasn't particularly noteworthy then, was he? Am I getting this wrong? Because, yes, I knew, I think we all knew him to be the speaker, but he comes into his own in the later period of the Brexit kind of crisis, doesn't he? So tell, yeah, tell us yeah. about that period. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's partly, obviously, because of what they were just, you know, Brexit was, was such a huge issue. And also because mm-hmm. it was a minority government at the time, the Commons was much stronger, whereas in the coalition years, even though it was a hung parliament, the combination of the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives together gave them a big majority in the House of Commons, so they could get stuff through relatively uncontroversially. Not everything, mm-hmm. obviously, um, but it was you know in terms of that, the Speaker's influence was was not as um, strong as it was going to be, you know, in the, in the latter years that you refer to. But you were still, you know, you were still a fixture. And the first thing that Burko started doing was introducing uh, or just using a lot more what we call urgent questions, which is. Um, because there's scheduled parliamentary business where at 2.30 you're going to talk about defence, at 3.30 you'll talk about health and et cetera. But there's also capacity to have uh, a minister come in to address questions on the subject of a day, and that's what's called an urgent mm-hmm. question. Now, before they'd not really been used, only really in extreme circumstances. But with Burko, if it was a big, important news story of the day, he would 
award an urgent question. An MP has to ask for it for it to for it to be awarded. He can't just conjure it up himself. But um, and so as a result of that, news was broken in the House of Commons, and that hadn't happened for ages. So mm-hmm. important developments were announced to the House of Commons, and if there was a big story, so you know, if we're taking you back a bit, but big stories at the time were like the takeover of B Sky B. Um, uh, you had the phone hacking scandal, you know, mm-hmm. I'm really taking you back now. But obviously, these were huge stories at the time. And Burke made sure that um, MPs got to ask the questions that they needed to ask. So in that regard, he made a name for himself as someone who um, kind of really rejuvenated the House of Commons as, as, a, as a, a forum of debate and scrutiny, which, as I say, under Michael Martin, it really wasn't, you know, even though you had the Iraq war and stuff like that under his tenure. Um, you know, regularly you'd see on the broadcasters, the BBC and Sky, cutting to the House, you know, live footage from the House of Commons. And that's largely due to Burko, to be honest with you. He also became known in those years um, for his, uh, uh, some of his reprimands from the chair. You know, he could put down MPs with uh, some curt comments and some uh, nice articulation. So he, you know, he did gain notoriety for that regard. And in doing so, his, um, relationship with Cameron continued to sour to the point mm-hmm. where they tried to get rid of him in uh, in 2015. I don't know if we'll come on to talk about that, about that. but um, yeah, certainly he, you know, during those five years, also behind the scenes, he was making quite a lot of changes. So he introduced a nursery uh, where a bar used to be. He introduced uh, the education centre. He uh, was instrumental in the rollout of a parliamentary studies module that went to universities across the UK. So he was doing lots of advocacy work on the side. Um, so he, you know, he was reforming behind the scenes and reforming uh, in front of the camera as well um, with by awarding urgent questions. In doing so, he was also accumulating his fair share of detractors because, um, you know, Burko was an amazing reformer, but he was um, quite aggressive in how he went about it. And this is when various incidences of alleged bullying took place. Mm-hmm. So it was a very important time, even though perhaps in the public consciousness he was still a bit part player compared to what would come after the coalition years. But I would say, you know, the highlight was certainly his his reawakening of the House of Commons. He's strengthening the role of the backbenchers and um, he's in effect putting Parliament central in the British political system in that Parliament is sovereign. The 2015 British election has thrown up a stunning result that confounded the opinion polls and returned David Cameron and his Conservatives to power alone. Their coalition partners were destroyed and the UKIP challenge failed to materialise. The main opposition Labour Party suffered a bloodbath in Scotland, where English-based parties collapsed. And of course, it means bringing together the different nations of our United Kingdom. I have always believed in governing with respect... In this Parliament, I will stay true to my word and implement as fast as I can the devolution that all parties agreed for Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Many accused Cameron during the campaign of scaremongering that Scots MPs would run the country alongside Labour. We can make Britain a place where a good life is in reach for everyone who is willing to work and do the right thing. And yes, we will deliver that in-out referendum on our future in Europe. Despite UKIP's poor showing and sealing five more years in power, this time without any inconvenient partner, 
Cameron felt obliged to raise Europe in his victory speech instead of quietly letting the issue die. These final results mark the end of the domestic political war. Cameron now appears determined to open his European front, setting the scene for a potentially devise of 18 months before a referendum. The Tory party win a surprising majority and a part of that compact Cameron says to the right wing of the Tory party that we'll have a vote on leaving the European Union. Nobody thinks that um, that when this vote then comes around that it's ever going to be passed, uh, this referendum. And we have Theresa May, who then becomes a prime minister because Cameron steps on his sword after uh, that uh, referendum is lost. We have Theresa May, uh, who is presiding over our negotiated exit uh, from the European Union. And all of a sudden, uh, Parliament is incredibly important because there's another election. She calls it a snap election, thinking that she'll get a thumping majority in the House of Commons so she can ram home whatever she wants uh, to do with Brexit. Uh, but actually, she doesn't have that majority. All of a sudden, uh, John Burko is some kind of power broker almost. Um, let's go through that period, because as you said at, at the start, um, American listeners of this podcast will know him because of, because of his performance uh, during that period. And he was seen as the hero really uh for uh for people for for remainers in and outside of the united kingdom so i've done the setup so theresa may is in office but not necessarily in power discuss i think an important place to start is that we haven't discussed it yet but john burke mm-hmm. was a proper eurosceptic he was a real eurosceptic um when he was in a student he used to take on his uh, lecturers over uh, the UK's membership of the common market when he was an, an, an MP. He used to call for a referendum on membership of the European Union, staunch opponent of the euro. Um, he, uh, I was told that he was a member of the ERG. You know, the ERG is the European oh. Research Group, um, which was, uh, was quite powerful backbench force. It was, it was a different, different sort of entity 20 years ago than what, it, what we know, know it to be now. But yeah, he mm-hmm. was on the interview for a, for a new uh, position on the ERG. Uh, I spoke to someone who interviewed for it. So that's just another... It's important to know that because obviously by the time the referendum came around, um, he had changed his views. Now, an important date in this is the uh, 3rd of February 2017. Um, so Theresa May, as you say, she's in power. John Burke goes to the University of Reading and he reveals that he voted to remain. Now... Mm-hmm. That was a controversial thing to have done. Now, notwithstanding your views on, on Brexit and what have you, uh, the speaker is supposed to be... Neutral. Neutral and not pronounce on how they voted at, on anything mm-hmm. or how they would vote. So that was a huge gamble. That was a big gamble for him. Um, and it, you know, those on the other side of the um, debate to himself would use that as evidence of bias subsequently. But notwithstanding that, so you're right. So Theresa May goes to the polls. She gets... Um, somewhat humiliated, comes back, has to sign a confidence and supply agreement with the, the DUP to sort of prop up a government. Now, what happens then? So Burko, 
um, is faced with a government who uh, act as if they are in a majority government, where they feel they have a right to get their business through, where they feel that uh, the House of Commons is something of a nuisance, a bit of a bugerance. Um, mm-hmm. And then they come up against Burko, who believes the opposite of all of that. Um, now, in the initial approach of the Theresa May government to Brexit, Parliament was 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 very much secondary. So she wanted the right for the government to be able to unilaterally trigger Article 50, which is the two-year process by which um, a country leaves the European Union. She didn't want Parliament to have a say. Um, she gave uh, Lancaster House speech where she announced that the UK would be leaving the single market. She did that outside of Parliament, not to Parliament, as should be the case. So over an, an 18-month period at least, the government had acted in a way that frankly wound Burko up and wound up a number of people who value the UK's parliament, you know, democratic system and, and use mm-hmm. of parliamentary democracy. So that's the backdrop to everything that happened. Because the truth is, you know, even if you're a lever, I think you can recognise that to be true, that, you know, MPs weren't even going to be given a vote on the divorce deal that went through mm-hmm. in January of this year. Um, they weren't even going to be given a say on that um, under the original plans of the Theresa May government. So given John Burko's um, predisposition to stand up for Parliament and the rights of backbenchers, it created, fostered this environment for this almighty uh, and very famous row, whereby uh, Burko took it upon himself to see it that the government were, were very much held to account. Now, the crucial point, as you will know, will be is around December 2018. So Theresa May has, uh, she's got her deal now. It was agreed in November 2018. Over the previous couple of years, there have been lots of rows about parliament and you know the government's negotiating strategy and all this kind of stuff. And Theresa May was supposed to uh, she scheduled the first vote on the deal for the 10th of December 2018. And then when she realized she was about to lose it very badly, delayed it. Now, Burke mm-hmm. was furious because it was being scheduled in parliamentary time. MPs had not been given a vote on whether to delay it or not. The whole thing was just, you know, a cock up. Um, a month later was the, supposed to be the first meaningful vote, what we call the meaningful vote, which was a vote on the deal. And Burko awarded uh, basically the, the same motion carried forward with all the, the same debate timetabling. And this is going to get slightly wonkish, but if you bear with me. Um, and normally you can't amend this agreed government motion, which sets out the way in which the debate is going to run and the, and the timings and everything. But Dominic Grieve, who was the former Attorney General, uh, Conservative MP and, and, and anti-Brexit, you know, pro-Remain campaigner, put forward an amendment to this motion, even though he, you know, he told me he didn't think he would he would get it. You know, he didn't think Burko would say, yes, MPs can vote on this amendment, which I'll go into in a second. But Burko, seemingly in breach of what had been convention to this point, did allow this government motion to be amended. And this mm-hmm. caused the most almighty row. Because 
he had seemingly not followed the rules, quote-unquote rules, because they're not really rules. They're sort of interpretations of existing uh, decisions made previously. Um, And that was where he really became known, not just nationally, but internationally, because that was Burko making a decision to allow the House of Commons to express its view. Speaking to Amendment 7 in the name of my honourable friends, myself and indeed other honourable members, I'm conscious that this amendment has taken on a life of its own. When this committee stage of the bill started, it was my intention, and I hope one that I have observed and honoured throughout, that I would try to approach the amendments I tabled in the spirit which they are intended, which is to try to improve difficult legislation where I entirely recognise that the government faces many challenges. Brexit is full of risk, full of complexity, legal and otherwise, and the government is entitled to my support wherever possible to carry Brexit out as smoothly as possible and with the least impact on the well-being of the citizens of our country. That has been my aim throughout. The eyes to the right, 309. The nose to the left, 305. So the, the amendment was for Theresa May to report back to the House of Commons within three days of losing a vote on her deal, what she mm-hmm. would do next. And it allowed the series of events whereby MPs could influence the agenda. Um, and MPs supported this amendment. They voted for it. Now, his opponents would say that he put, you know, he, he just set up in flames centuries of precedent and um, rules around parliamentary procedure and how these things work. What I would say, and what I'm sure you, I imagine you would say as well, was that he um, allowed the House to express its will. It supported this mm-hmm. amendment, which became known as the Grieve Amendment and gave MPs the opportunity to actually influence the debate and come to a decision. And that was really the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of uh, the antagonism between Burko and the government. So we're now in January 2019. That was when he really sort of took a stand and said, um, you might think this is going to work in this way and that I'm going to behave in this way. Actually, no, this is how it's going to go. I'm going to facilitate the House of Commons and backbenchers, make sure that they can have a say. It's not solely at your um, discretion, Theresa May. You're not in the majority in this parliament. Um, And this issue needs to be debated by MPs. So that was that was that had been building for two years. But that Mm -hmm. was the big moment where he broke with convention and um, split opinion, but ultimately did his best to allow the House of Commons to express its view. Was was John Burko basically just better at understanding Erskine May, you know, the rules and procedures of, of Parliament, just better than the government? And the other question to ask is, how much was he truly led by people like Dominic Grieve? Or was there basically some kind of cabal of Remainers of which... Um, he was a part of? 
Um, in terms of Erskine May, I would say he, he, you know, as Erskine May should be interpreted, half the things that Burko did in that final 12 months shouldn't have happened. But he was right on the wider point that these were unprecedented times and occasionally in history, precedent has to be departed from. And occasionally, conventions, normalities and traditions need to be moved on. And he was not the only person guilty of of doing things that were unconventional. You know, if you remember, Theresa May ended up losing three meaningful votes, mm. which in normal times would be a vote of confidence in a government. Yeah. You know, if, you know you'd just resign if you lost one of those. Um, you know, Geoffrey Cox, the attorney, the attorney general, was found in contempt of parliament. In normal times, he would resign. Um, the Labour Party and other opposition parties voted against an election um, because it was more, be- you know, initially they voted, kept voting against having an election because it was more beneficial to actually keep that current parliament going mm. uh, and make sure the government uh, was held to account on Brexit. Again, no one had ever heard of that before, of an opposition party going, you know what, no, we don't want an election. We don't want to get rid of you. Mm. So this that whole period of time was rife with people um, and uh, organisations going against what was usually the done thing. And John Burke just happened to be one of them. So he, he, he it wasn't necessarily having a greater a sort of knowledge of Erskine May. It was more a greater understanding, perhaps, of uh, the slightly bigger picture that Parliament needed to be the focal point for these things. Mm. Um, you know, the point, the point I make in the book is that the, the impasse, the Brexit impasse did continue. But that's not Burko's fault. Some people say, well, Burko was the blockage and Burko was the one who exacerbated this complete sort of paralysis in, in Parliament. But it's not true. It's not his fault that MPs just couldn't decide what they were for. They were given plenty of opportunities to either agree to Theresa May's deal, to back a second referendum, to back a Norway-style Brexit or whatever it might have been. They were given lots of opportunities by Burko to do that, and they didn't. So mm-hmm. that's not his fault. You know, that's for them to to think about. As for uh, the cabal of Remainers, look, uh, you know, Dominic Grieve, he did approach Burko about this amendment, but nothing untoward happened. And people like Hillary Benn as well spoke to Burko. But that's not in and of itself in any way a conspiracy because the speaker is available to MPs to, to chat, and to mm. talk things through. I don't think there is a Remainer conspiracy of the kind that some people want there to be with John Burko. I think that... My personal view is that given he said that Brexit, after he left uh, the speakership, he said Brexit was the biggest uh, post-war mistake the UK's ever made. I do think he was biased on the issue of Brexit. However, um, and I say that, you know, I'm a, I voted Remain, so I'm not, mm. I, just, I just think he was biased. But um, equally, I think there wasn't a conspiracy where people were trying to block Brexit and there was a WhatsApp group and all this kind of stuff that perhaps people want there to be. I, I do think he was trying to do his, his best to allow the House of Commons to have its say. And it would have been damning if he had kept allowing the House of Commons to vote on having a second referendum and MPs kept rejecting it. You know, half the time the House of Commons agreed to the amendments that he awarded or they voted for the Grieve Amendment. They voted for, in these emergency debates for the Ben Act and, and all these kinds of things. So he, he had an ear for what the House of Commons wanted. It, my only gripe, my gripe with Burko on this issue is that I just wish he didn't then 
mouth off about Brexit so much because it makes it harder for me to defend him because, you know, against people who have, you know, mm. preconceptions about him. Because if he just, if he doesn't need to say his views. If he kept them to his, if he didn't say that he voted to remain and just behaved in this way as he did, I think that would be much more powerful. That's my personal opinion. But, you know, but what, 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 why do you think he has been so vociferous and why do you think he gave that speech at Reading? <sighs> well... It's one of those. It's one of those questions that uh, I ask myself uh, every day, and um, fortunately, I think part of it he does like the limelight. He does like the limelight, and there's no, you know, there can be no denying that when someone speaks and acts in the way that he does, he does enjoy some of the attention. Certainly, momentous times for Britain and for the world. I didn't anticipate the way events would turn. I don't say this in any spirit of resentment or complaint. That would be completely inappropriate. But politicians usually tell you about when they were right. And I am very happy to admit to you when I was wrong. My wife and I had dinner in, I think, something like March of last year with friends of ours, Michael Levy, Lord Levy and his wife Gilda, in a restaurant in central London. And at one point, Michael Levy turned to me and said, well, John, what's going to happen in the EU referendum and the presidential election? And I said, oh, Michael, the British people will vote to remain and Hillary will be the next president. And he said to me, John, I want both of those things and I expect neither. And he was convinced that the public would rebel against the political establishment and vote to withdraw from the EU, partly because he thought there was a very heavy concern, a very strong and dominant concern about migration, which he didn't share, but he thought that it would be to the fore, and I think the evidence is that proved to be true. And as far as the presidential election was concerned, he thought, well, like me, he thought Hillary would make a good president, but he thought she was incurably unpopular and just wouldn't command support, and that proved to be true. So I'm very conscious that, you know, I'm in office at a momentous time. I do believe in respecting the will of the electorate. I mean, Parliament can do what it likes, but and this may not be popular with some people in this audience. Personally, I voted to remain. I thought it was better to stay in the European Union than not, partly for economic reasons, being part of a big trade block, and partly because I think we're in a world of power blocks. And I think for all the weaknesses and deficiencies of the European Union, it's better to be part of that big power block in the world than thinking that you can act as effectively on your own. And there are a lot of supranational and multilateral and global challenges, which I think we're better placed to try to address as part of a wider group. And so I voted to remain. He knows his onions, Berko. He's a smart cookie. And he knows his historical precedents. And he would have known when he revealed that he voted to remain that he was taking quite quite a risk um i think part of it might have been motivated by you think what he did that because at that point it really was a remain parliament even though article 50 has been you know voted for but basically it's a remain parliament isn't it and it was this a way of him basically saying look we we can um we can exit the european union with uh on the most favourable terms for this Remain Parliament, so and and I'm going to be the tip of that spear. 
I think I think that there's merit in our in that argument. I think there is. I think it also, you know, in revealing that he voted to remain and adding as as he did, he did endear himself to a part of um, uh, the establishment. Um, mm-hmm. I hate that word, but you know, let's, let's call it that. That perhaps he had not been endeared to before, and lots, you know, it was, it was very interesting. Lots of people, well, you know, would say, "Oh, I used to, I didn't like John Burke. I thought he was a pain in the ass." But then actually, I, I back him, and I love him because of what he did on Brexit. I think there was some of that going on. I think he is, you know, as as we've, you know, we've channeled quite well in this conversation. He's confrontational. He's not shy of confrontation. Mm. So I think part of it was a calculated risk. Just like I know this will cause controversy, but I can defend, you know, because the thing is, he, he's such a good, so good at arguing and defending himself and getting his point across that, you know, he can sort of navigate any situation he gets himself into and, and justify it. Um, I think part of it is just, it's just it, it, he, a propensity to, to take up the limelight. And, and it's my, it's my big regret about him uh, in this regard is that I just, I just think he, he, would go down his legacy would be stronger for having um wound in his views and acted mm. in the same way and it would have been a more kind of um easy, easier to fend and an almost a more noble pursuit of of parliamentary democracy and uh, and the values and tenets of of everything that comes with that and the the principle that backbenchers have a right to be heard as opposed to the furthering of John Burko's political career amb- and ambitions. Mm. Towards the end of that last parliament, um, he knew that he was part of the reason why there was gobbings in the works, wasn't he? So he, he basically announced that he was going to resign, um, not, not stand for election again, sorry, which is fundamentally the same thing. But um, so he did realise that he was a part, a small but important part of the problem with that parliament in the end, didn't he? And that's put in the allegations of uh, bullying to one side, which kind of surfaced just before that and stuff, or really came out into the the public light. Yeah, I think, well, the the thing with him was that um, he had, first of all, pledged to serve for nine years, and he was was about ten and a half into... Mm-hmm. You know, having been speaker, so there was there was that. Uh, the, the the main factor was that the Conservatives said they would stand against him in Buckingham. So usually, um, sitting speakers are not challenged by the larger parties. Smaller parties tend to have a pot, people like UKIP and stuff, but not um, Labour or the Lib Dems or Conservatives. And the Conservatives announced on the eighth of September, twenty nineteen, that they would stand against Burko at any election. And obviously, at that point, they were trying to call an election but they, they mm. couldn't get it from that point so he was not he would if the conservatives stood against him he would have lost his seat because no matter how popular an, an individual is you know it's been proven you know at, at that election um that independents just struggle against the might of a party machine so he would not have been able to go out on his own terms is the truth um but as for the remainder parliament i mean he probably thought um, you know, he said he was gutted when they actually gave in to the election. He wanted to pass on the baton to a speaker elected by that particular parliament who could continue his work on Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the Lib Dems 
uh, and others wanted an election and they're paying the price for that now. Um, so I think he just, he'd run out of road. You know, he'd, 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 he'd been there a year longer than he said he would serve. Um, the Conservatives were emboldened to stand against him. He couldn't go out on his own terms any other way now. He, he'd, he'd done as much as he could. And he was the longest serving speaker since the Second World War. So in that regard, he'd, you know, he'd, he'd had his fill. He'd served his time and he'd, he'd done everything he could. I think um, it was the right time for him to depart the scenes. I would like to thank the Prime Minister and colleagues for their kind and generous personal remarks, which are greatly appreciated. And in particular, again, I want to thank my wife, Sally, and our three children, Oliver, Freddie and Jemima, for the support, stoicism and fortitude which they've displayed through thick and thin over the last decade. I'll never forget it, and I'll always be grateful for it. Although we may disagree about some of the legislative innovations that you have favoured, there is no doubt in my mind that you have been a great servant of this Parliament and of this House of Commons. You have modernised, you have widened access, you have cared for the needs of those with disabilities, and you have cared so deeply for the rights of backbenchers that you've done more than anyone since Stephen Hawking to stretch time in this particular (laughs) session. And as we come to the end of what must be the longest retirement since Frank Sinatra, uh, Mr (laughs) Speaker. I'm sure the whole House will want to join me in thanking you and and hoping that you enjoy in your retirement the soothing medicament uh, that you have so often described uh, for the rest of us. What's going to be his legacy? Um, Is he going to go down as a great parliamentarian? Is he going to go down as somebody who reawaken the power of uh, a parliament against the executive, etc., etc. Somebody's updating your biography of him in uh, 2120. What are they going to say about John Burko? I think lots of what you say will feature, but what you can't ignore is a lot of what happened behind the scenes as well. So I think he was certainly a great reformer. He was a great defender of fundamental rights in our democracy, which we hold dear at a time where our constitution and the very fabric of the country at that point was under a lot of pressure. Given everything we're experiencing at the moment with coronavirus, it does seem to put some of that into perspective, but not for Mm. generations have we faced such a contentious time in our politics. So that is part of it. And yes, he was a great parliamentarian. He's one of the most talented of his generation, which included, by the way, you know, in 1997, Theresa May came in, Philip Hammond, Oliver Letwin. Mm. Lots of senior Conservative politicians, of whom uh, uh, John Burko was one and was one of the most talented. So undoubtedly a highly proficient and skilled politician. But he was also a quite an aggressive, um, relatively hostile and difficult person who did quite a lot of collateral damage along the way. And there are people who work in the House of Commons who are not big fans of John Burko. And I think that is, that is an important part of the picture because mm. you know, it can be a great the best politicians know that to be a great reformer and, and to achieve change you need to be determined to a certain extent you need to be ruthless but you don't need to treat people badly and i think that often burko did that line was blurred 
and I appreciate you know that might sound controversial. I think if you you know in the book, lots of that is, is detailed in some in quite a lot of the the chapters. So I think you have to factor that into the overall the overall picture. But one thing's for sure is we won't forget him in a hurry. What next for you, sir? Tell us what you're doing at the moment. Coronavirus emergencies accepted. What's next? Well, I think I'm going to try and just relax a little bit because um, this I've been working full time for the House magazine. Let's go to there whilst also writing the book. So it's been a fairly full on six months or so for me. So I'm going to just unwind for a couple of weeks. Um, I'm still, you know, still doing the House magazine, still interviewing politicians. We're writing lots of features, obviously, about the coronavirus and the lack of global, global leadership. That's something I'm looking at at the moment. Um, and then in the future, I'd, I'd love to get back into book writing again. Um, I just need to find someone who is as as fascinating and stimulating as, as John Burko. He does feel almost like a, a politician because he was so much a parliamentarian as opposed to, you know, a, a government minister. He does feel like he's almost from a different age, from a bygone age in that regard. There was somebody who was very much kind of steeped in, as, as you said, you know, when he when he comes into Parliament in uh, in 97, he's a filibuster. He knows about all the arcane rules of how to, you know, slow legislation and just to um, to mess the works up, basically, but very much between the procedure of the House. And viewed that way, for me, almost harkens back to some kind of 19th century politician who was about the clubability and about the rules of Parliament. So it's, it's almost ironic that even though he feels much very much like a parliamentarian, he didn't have those soft skills to be able actually to be um clubbable in that regard you know having a drink at the right bar with the right junior minister at the right time and just helping their passage in the upper echelons of the tory party or within parliament in the way of which parliament has worked it very much in that way he's very much a contradictory character i i, I completely agree with you and uh, he he you know he there are a few people you meet in life who uh, when you ask them at the age of 10 or 11, you, what do you want to do? And they might turn around to you and say, I want to be an MP. And they're always the ones that you're like, gosh, no, who would admit that? But he would have been. William Hague. No, he, he is another weirdo. He, he said the same thing, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's true. But you're right. He, he absolutely knew the fundamentals of, of politics, how Parliament operates. He was ready to go mm. the first day he became an MP. Some people take years to acclimatize and get used to how it runs he was ready he was ready to go but you're right that actually one of the more subtle sides of politics is the human human interactions and and uh, relationship building qualities that you need to to succeed and some people can get there from sheer determination and sort of brute force and that was probably burko other people can get there from networking in a slightly cynical way i think you know he he, he wasn't shy of networking the, the, the issue often was just building up a a rapport with the people that he needed to uh, in his early years in, in conservative politics anyway. But he got more adept at that. And that was why he won the speakership. So, and that was why he was able to, to remain in place for a long time because he did mm-hmm. eventually learn, but you know, he did learn how to, to, to secure those relationships. But when he came in, he didn't. And it was something that didn't come naturally to him and has never come naturally to him throughout his life. As I say, interpersonal skills wise, he's not, he's not blessed. But he's blessed with a strategic mind and a, a gift of articulation, unlike uh, many or any of his contemporaries. Mm. Uh, perfect end. 
Um, one thing I found really sad, whatever you think about Brexit, the one thing I have found really shocking and upsetting over the last seven months is the way that, following the referendum, a proportion of the electorate felt they had the licence to be racist and abusive and vicious and threatening. I honestly thought the days when I would see slogans daubed on walls saying words to the effect, fuck off Polish scum, and that sort of thing, I thought those days were gone. And they've been really shocking and very upsetting experiences, not just for me, but for I think a lot of other people in Parliament around the country, and a lot of people across the country, don't underestimate it, are very frightened by the atmosphere in parts of the country. And I think the media have some responsibility in this matter to weigh their words in what they say. And to be honest, I don't care what people say about political correctness. Political correctness has a good feature to it, which is respect for other people and a concern for the impact of what you say on how other people feel. And in my view, the equality legislation of recent decades on race and on gender and on sexuality has been a very positive thing for Britain. Britain is a, a more civilised and more humane and more decent society, in my opinion, than it was 20 years ago. If people want to find you on social media, Sebastian, how can they do that? I'm on Twitter uh, at, at Seb Whale. I'm also on Instagram at the same uh, name, so it's S-E-B-W-H-A-L-E. And remind us the name of the book. It's uh, Call to Order, uh, biography of John Burko. It's published by Bite Back. You can get it more or less anywhere that you get your your uh, your books and you, uh, usually. Sebastian, well, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and explaining and uh, showing us uh, the political journey of John Burko. Thank you. Boom! You've done it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.